Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the Gospel of Luke. I'll be reading in Luke chapter 12, beginning at verse 22. It's on page 1618 in your pew Bible. Luke 12:22. Let's pray. Lord, give us ears that we might hear. Minds that will understand. Hearts that will be open to and love your word. Amen. Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn. Yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the lilies grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, Not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink, Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the word of the Lord. And, and what Cheryl just read for us is actually a, a small snippet of a, a longer story that's happening 
If you go back to the chapter 11, Jesus is actually confronting the Pharisees and, and gives a whole bunch of woes to the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. And, and at the end of that, they start plotting against him, and they're pretty angry with him. And, and this sense of threat is hanging over them. And then Jesus steps out of the place where he was with them and, and walks outside and it says, there's a crowd of people of many thousands that had gathered, so much so that they were starting to trample on each other. So this crowd that's pressing in to see Jesus is on one side eager to hear his words and on the other side of him are the Pharisees who are done with hearing his words. And you get Jesus giving a, a long section throughout chapter 12 where he's talking, direct, for the most part, directly to his disciples. And in between these two crowds of people who want to see him and people who want nothing to do with him. And so Jesus is speaking to them in that context. The passage starts off, Jesus' first word is, Therefore... And as we have learned, when you see the therefore, you need to ask what it's there for. So we go back a little bit. There's, there's actually two stories that really lead into this one. The first one is uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. And, and we'll explain a little bit more about it. But it's Jesus essentially saying to the people, don't, to his disciples, don't fear those who can destroy your body. Don't fear those who can destroy your body. They felt under threat from the Pharisees behind them. And they were worried. What's going to happen to us? What are the Pharisees going to do to us? They have all sorts of power and control. So we'll touch base on that a little bit. Thir verses 13 through 21. Someone in the crowd, someone in the crowd over here, shouts to Jesus, Tell my brother to give me my part of the inheritance. And Jesus responds to him and then tells the parable of the rich fool. And in that response, he says, Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. We'll pick up on that. Both of those pick up and preface today's text, which we'll come back to at the end. Do not be afraid. Your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. So that's where we're headed today. The first part, do not be afraid of those who can destroy your body. There's a, a whole bunch of people that, that want nothing to do with Jesus anymore. These Pharisees and teachers of the law hold a lot of power. As we know from the rest of the story, they eventually convince Pilate to kill Jesus. They have the power, the, the institutional weight behind them to make happen what they want to happen. And later on in the book of Acts, they stone Stephen. This is a group of people who when they are angry and they want you gone, they make it happen. And the disciples are afraid. Jesus, you've ticked off the most powerful people around us. Other than the Roman Empire, these are the people who have control over our lives. They can make life miserable for us. And the disciples were starting to move from that. Isn't it great to follow Jesus into that space of, it's getting kind of dangerous to follow you, Jesus. It's not as easy as we thought it would be. Jesus' response 
talking to his disciples in between these groups of people is is to say to them, if you're going to fear anyone, if you're going to choose fear, if you're going to fear anyone, fear God who can not only take your body but your soul. Look at where real authority is. That's part of what he's saying. Remember whose you are. Remember who's in control of everything. Remember that none of this that's happening around you is out of God's control. It reminds you in part of that Heidelberg Catechism and why they start off by saying our only comfort in life and death is that we belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in the midst of this pressure of feeling under threat and, and like we are, we are in danger and of forgetting that God is actually in control in the midst of the conflict and the stress around us. And Jesus is saying, if you're going to be afraid, if you're going to choose fear right now, might as well make that fear worthwhile. Be afraid of God. He has the power not only to destroy your body, but he has authority over your very soul. And he quickly adds this. And oh, by the way, God even cares for the sparrows who are sold for nothing. It's not that Jesus wants people to be afraid of God. There's something Jesus is starting to do in this passage that that picks up later on in the text. He's addressing people's image of God and how we perceive God. And part of the worldview around them was that the gods are the ones who we really need to be afraid of because they can destroy us. And the cultures around them were always in a posture of fear of the gods. We have to live in such a way that we make the gods happy. Otherwise, they're going to come after us. And in some sense, Jesus is saying, if you want to live like the world around you, that's what it looks like. But know this. Your God, the God of the Bible, the God who has revealed himself to you, he cares even for sparrows. And sparrows are sold for five for two cents. They're not worth anything. They don't cost anything. People trade them and get rid of them all the time, but God actually cares for them. Implication being, you are worth more than the sparrows. And if God cares for sparrows, do you think God has forgotten about you? Do you think he's not paying attention to you? Know this God. This God who has all the power to do whatever he wants and yet he chooses to care for sparrows. If that's God's character, what do you have to be afraid of? Why are you worried about those who threaten you? God cares for you. So that's part of the preface to the text we're we're entering in today and we need to hear it and some of the things from this part come up later on. The second part of why is the therefore, what does it refer to? Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Get this random guy out in the crowd. It doesn't tell us anything more than that. Someone out in the crowd shouts out, Jesus, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Okay, we may be reading into the text a little bit, but 
and I may be an oldest brother, so this may be prejudice, sounds like a little brother who, who's kind of spoiled and, and is afraid now what's going to happen to him because he's gotten his big brother into trouble a whole lot through his life, and now that daddy's gone, he's in trouble. <laughs> daddy's not going to bail me out. Daddy's not going to care for me. I got to fend for myself. How am I going to get out of this mess? Jesus, help me. Jesus, come save me. Give me the money I need. Jesus, my genie in the lamp, show up right now. Do you hear the tone? Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. You know, in that culture, the inheritance went to the older brother. And the older brother was expected to use those resources, not for himself, but actually to take care of the rest of the family. And so you're seeing in this complaint coming out of the crowd a brokenness in relationship somewhere in that family. And not only a brokenness in relationship, there, there is a, a craving in this person's, this person's speech. Tell, me, tell my brother to divide the inheritance. I want money because my life is secure if I have money. My life is made secure in money. And Jesus gives him a harsh response gives him a harsh response and essentially says to him, says to him this parable about the rich fool. And in that parable of the rich fool, you have someone who all of a sudden has abundance of wealth. His, his fields have produced way more than he had anticipated. He had barns. He was a wise farmer. He had barns all set up to store the crops in. And, and the season's done, and he's scratching his head going, wow, I totally underestimated this crop. There's way more. Now what am I going to do? I'm going to build more barns for myself. Jesus is going after something here a reliance upon what we can make for ourselves and produce for ourselves. And in the, in the background is passages like Deuteronomy 8 that God is the one who gives us the ability to produce and accumulate wealth. And, and that God entrusts resources to us so that we can provide for others. A whole mantra of the Old Testament that if we have been blessed, we are to turn around and be a blessing to others. And this rich fool, this rich fool in the crowd, is not concerned about blessing others. He's not concerned about taking care of anybody else. He's only concerned about himself and how he can provide for himself. I want what I want because I want it for me. It's a very self-focused understanding of resources. And Jesus is saying to him, don't put your trust in money. It will, not, it will not provide for you. God is the one provide for you. And when God provides to you, he is intending to provide through you to others around you. The blessings God gives to us are intended to move through us to the people around us. Part of what Jesus is saying to this rich fool, the parable ends, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Part of what Jesus is saying to the crowd, it's not just your money, not just the tithe of your money, not just any resource that you have, property or crops or whatever, it is all that you are that belongs to God. I belong body and soul 
to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. It's part of the end of that Heidelberg Catechism that picks up on this. We love quoting that first part, don't we? I belong, body and soul, and life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And, and we have this sense of comfort and peace about that. We don't often quote the end of it. This is how it ends. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. That comfort, that salvation we're given in Jesus Christ is intended to turn around into the way we live our lives, our whole lives, wholeheartedly. We start to pick up on something here. That wholehearted is a big part of what Jesus goes after with his disciples. So to the, the text for today, what is Jesus really after in this whole talk he has? And, and in the middle, verse 29, if you read verse 29, it says, do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. Do not set your heart. In the Hebrew way of thinking in, the, in that time of Jesus, the heart was, was that place where des desires came from and decisions were made. They didn't so much make the decision with their mind. It wasn't so much a logical weighing of, of decisions. It was a heart decision is how they talked about it. it. It was a decision of the heart because the heart was the place where desires lived. And Jesus is going after their hearts. He's starting to say to them, don't set your heart. Pay attention to what your heart is set on. Is your heart set on what the Pharisees have, a power and control over the world around you? Or is your heart set like the, that rich young fool in the crowd who's set on providing for himself and accumulating resources for himself? Where is your heart's desire? What are you focused on as you stand in the middle of these two crowds? Power and control, wealth and prosperity, where is your heart? It harks back to something that was said in verse 15. This was Jesus' first response to that, that young man out in the crowd. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And so Jesus is, is taking a little bit from what he said to the crowd and he's saying it back to his disciples now in a different way. It's about your heart. The money, all the money in the world, all the money that your family has, all those resources available to you cannot take care of you. Your heart and the attitude of your heart and the desire of your heart matters. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. In some sense, Jesus' conversation with his disciples is about money and possessions. It's a conversation we can relate to in our culture. Our, our culture is in such a way training us consistently with a message of we need more, we need to get jobs, that provide for us. In fact, if you talk to high school students and you start saying, why are you going to go to university? I'm going to go to university to get a degree so I can get a good job, so I can buy a good house, so I can have a good life. We actually had that type of question when I was teaching at Calvin College before. And out of the class of close to 30 students, 25 of them 
had that same response. That same pattern could be picked up in the paper they were written, writing. Why did you go to? Why did you come to school? I came to school so I can get a degree and get a good job. Some of them actually said in there, so I can go on vacations around the world. And we chuckle at that. But these are kids who have grown up in the church and grown up with the gospel. And the desire of their heart came out in the papers. This longing to have a comfortable life marked by possessions. And so to some extent, Jesus is confronting in his disciples and in us this craving for money and possessions that guides our life and and structures the way we live. And he's saying, no, don't chase after those things because they cannot satisfy. They ultimately cannot provide for you. What this passage really about, though, it's about the desires of our hearts and the orientation of our hearts. How is our heart being shaped? How is our heart being formed? How are these desires getting into us? Where are they coming from? And how do they relate to God? A God who is creator. A God who we profess as as the maker of all things. A God who has sent his son to redeem us and to make us whole. A God who has watched over us and who promises to be with us again and again and again. God who promises to care for us. What's the shape of our hearts? Our money and our possessions just happen to be the circumstance in this conversation where Jesus opens up to go after our hearts. You think about the woman at the well. It's another situation. Jesus is walking uh, from, from Judea up to Galilee, and he's with his disciples, and they go through Samaria, and he comes to this well, Jacob's well, and a Samaritan woman meets him in the middle of the day, and Jesus sits down with her as the disciples have taken off to the city to get lunch. And Jesus is sitting there, and he says, Give me some water. And she is blown away that a Jewish man is talking to her, a Samaritan woman. And as, as the conversation unfolds, Jesus goes after her heart. Go tell your husband. Go get your husband. I don't have a husband. You're right to say you don't have a husband. In fact, you've had five husbands and the man you're with is no longer your husband. Your desire has been for other things and you've been chasing after other meanings of significance and you've lost sight of God. Jesus reveals to her that he's the Messiah, the only one who can provide her with meaning and purpose in life. The only one who can truly meet her needs. He is the living water. And so in just like in that circumstance where Jesus takes broken relationships and the chasing after meaningful relationship as the substance of life, he turns in this situation and says, I'm going to use your chasing after money and possessions as a way of exposing your heart. I need you to pay attention to your heart. Slow down. Stop for a minute between these two competing voices around you. Take stock of what's going on in your heart. You know, a lot of what happens when we come here to worship is that very thing. Worship, in many ways, is about us coming before God to say thank you to God. Thank you for how you've provided us. Thank you for how you've cared for us. There is a great Eucharist, a great thanksgiving that we give. But God also gathers us in this space to get us to slow down, 
to pay attention to what's happening in our hearts in the midst of our living throughout the week. And he wants us to check our desires and how our desires are being formed. So when we come into this space, it's not just about singing. It's not just about hearing the word preached. It's not just about prayers or offerings. It's not even just about catching up socially afterwards with a cup of coffee. God is at work in this place. And part of what God does as we are gathered together is to ask us, what's going on in your hearts What are you desiring? What are you chasing after? What are you craving? Do you desire me? Are you trusting me? Jesus exposes this condition of the hearts with his disciples in two ways. He says, consider the ravens. And we got to recognize ravens are an unclean bird. The Jewish people were not supposed to touch ravens. You kind of saw the ravens and you walked around them. You avoided them. And not only that, considered the ravens, it's, it's really an application of what Jesus said earlier. They heard him say that comment about the sparrows. God cares for you more than the sparrows. The sparrows were clean birds. You could buy them and sell them. You technically could eat them. They're okay. They weren't the dirty ravens. And here, Jesus says to his disciples, it's not just the birds that are being taken care of, the sparrows, the good birds. The ravens are taken care of by God. The ravens are watched over. Even the unclean things belong to God. God cares for them. And he adds this, God knows the numbers of the hairs on your head, and you are more valuable than the birds. You are worth more than the birds. If God cares for them and feeds them and watches over them, how much more will he do so for you? Are you paying attention to who God is? How about this? Consider the wildflowers, those things that are are designed and given splendor and beauty by God. and, And even though they are temporary, Other times in scripture, in talking with Job at one point, God refers to all the wildflowers in the mountains that no one will ever see. God creates these things and covers them with beauty and splendor. And if God takes care of them and does that for them, how much more so will he do for you? And the implication here is you're not temporary. God has no intention of discarding you like the wildflowers. God has no intention of getting rid of you or overlooking you or hiding you. God desires you. Jesus continues that. Your father knows that you need them. This language of your father is really important because it shows us how Jesus is reorienting their image of God. He's saying to them, God is a father, a caring, loving father. God is holding on to you. God has got you. The possessions won't care for you. The power and authority won't care for you. God is caring for you like a father. And it's important here to recognize what he's doing is not saying, now imagine your earthly father. Because for some of us, even in Jesus' time, the earthly father was not a pretty image. 
earthly father brought up all sorts of emotions of what is wrong in the world. The things that have driven us away because our dads have failed us. Instead, Jesus is setting up God as the father. The one who does everything a father should do. He is the standard by which all other fathers would be measured. He is the one who cares for us. Think in the background, the statement that we read earlier from Psalm 103, that refrain that goes all the way through the Old Testament. God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. That's the father description. And Jesus is reorienting their image of God, saying he's the one who's watching over us. John Calvin picks up on this in talking about the Lord's Prayer. And he does it in a couple different places. He does it in the Institutes, and then he does it in his commentary on the, on the Gospels. It says this, Our Father who art in heaven, that phrase, whenever we engage in prayer, there are two things to be considered, both that we may have access to God and that we may rely on him with full and unshaking confidence, his fatherly love toward us and his boundless power. Let us therefore entertain no doubt that God is willing to receive us graciously, that he is ready to listen to our prayers. In a word, that of himself, he is disposed to aid us. In other words, God's heart is a fatherly heart that is bent towards us, his children. He has the power and the desire to care for us and provide for us. In the Institutes, he says that word Father, our Father, is the most powerful part of the prayer because it completely reorients us to who God is and how God makes himself known to us as a God who loves us and cares for us, who is going to provide for us. Since God is our Father, who knows what we need, Therefore, seek first God's kingdom. I love this transition that happens in the text. It's Jesus has gone after the heart issues with his disciples. He's gone after, do you know who God is? Do you recognize him as your father? And he says, if you do, and when you recognize him as your father, then seek his kingdom. Not the power and authority to be in control of things like the Pharisees have been chasing after. Not the money and the possessions like the crowds have been chasing after. Seek God's kingdom. Because he's got you. He's holding on to you. He's the one taking care of you. You don't have to worry anymore. You don't have to be afraid. God's holding you. Bend your heart and your desires towards God's kingdom. Maybe a different way of saying it is set your affections on participating with God in his kingdom. Comes back to this at the end. Do not be afraid. Your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to prove you're worthwhile to deserve it. You don't have to be the oldest brother who gets the inheritance and wait on the older brother to provide for you. God's given it to you. He's seen it in his desire to give you the kingdom. The whole kingdom. The kingdom of God. The greatest thing that could ever be desired. And God says, it's yours. 
I give it to you already. Therefore, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Oftentimes, we take this verse out of context. We make it about a works righteousness that we've got to slave away under and we've got to prove ourselves worthy of God. And so the best way to do it is to sell everything we have and go give it to the poor. That word for possessions is unique, though. It really comes from two Greek words that are shoved together. One of them is under, and the other is authority. Everything under your authority, everything that's in your realm of control, not just physical possessions, but the things that you have control over, use those to bless others. And the word for the poor here, that's the English trying to come up with a, a way to say what the Greek is after. The Greek essentially is, is a word that means giving alms, giving things away. Go about life as an almsgiving type of life. Whatever God has put under your authority and control, use it to extend mercy, to, to give away to others, to become generous. Why? Because God's been generous with you. God's been generous with us. We don't need to hoard things like the crowds. We don't need to worry about power and control like the Pharisees. We can simply trust that because God has blessed us, he's put us in a position where we can bless others. And he ends with this. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's back to the heart. We give away not to prove ourselves worthy of belonging to God. We give away not to say, God, you gave me Jesus Christ. Look, I gave 20 bucks. <laughs> it's not a, a tit-for-tat type giving with God. The whole reason this giving is put out there, the whole talk about money and possessions in this passage comes right back at the end to the thing it began with. Where's your heart? And we give as a way of reorienting our hearts. The practice of giving things away and, and being generous towards others has nothing to do with the money itself or the possessions or our time or our skills or anything else. It has everything to do with our hearts and learning to orient our hearts again and again towards God and his way of life. So some questions for us. Questions to take away this morning. One of them may be simply that question. We haven't thought about it, but what are we worried about? What are those things that feel like they're threatening us and weighing heavy on us? For the disciples with Jesus, it was the, the physical threats and the anger of, of the Pharisees and, and teachers of the law. What is it for us? What's grabbed our heart and is, is distorting our desires and the attention of our heart? What are we treasuring in our heart? Is there a possession that we're treasuring? Is there a certain number that we we say we want in our retirement account in order for us to feel good and feel safe? Is it a certain job or a certain level of influence? What are we treasuring in our hearts? And how is that getting in the way of understanding God as the Father 
who cares for us, who loves us, who is generous toward us? Will we trust God to care for us as our loving Father? This probably is, is getting more to the heart of this text. Will we trust God to care for us as our loving Father? And finally, what will we give away? Maybe money, maybe time, maybe skill, maybe something else, but what will we give away as a way of reorienting our hearts toward God and God's kingdom? It's this last question that I hope we spend more time chewing on. How will we live our lives in such a way that we are constantly working to reorient ourselves towards what God is doing and the coming of his kingdom. Let's pray. You, Lord, are so gracious to us. You have already given us the kingdom in Jesus Christ. You've already forgiven our sins. You've already poured out your spirit upon us. You've already demonstrated to us that you love us and you will hold nothing back from us. You who gave us your own son, you'll give us all things. Help us to see you as the loving father, the one full of grace and compassion, who's slow to anger, who's abounding in love. Help us to live our lives in your abundance. So many things clutter our hearts, Lord. We need you. We need you to set us free from the things that have shaped and trapped our desires. Bend our hearts towards you in the coming of your kingdom, trusting that you are the God who provides for us. In Christ Jesus we pray. Amen.